The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. We're in Psalm chapter 3 today, and we've been incredibly blessed. Uh, I was so personally blessed last week uh, through Matt's message in Psalm 142 on preaching the gospel to ourselves. Um, Before we jump in, if you don't know me, if you're joining uh, the live stream and you're not a part of the Story City Church body, or maybe you're a family member of someone in our body, uh, just welcome. We're so glad you're here, and we really do pray that this is an encouraging time in a discouraging season. And uh, to our Story City faithful, our family, our church family, we love you. Pray you're fed this morning. Uh, Know that though we're separate physically, we are are united by the Spirit of God this morning. Uh, Open up to Psalm 3. That's where we will be this morning. And Psalm 3 is a psalm that, uh, that centers on the theme of prayer. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, of fear. And I just want to start by reading that psalm for us this morning. Psalm chapter 3. This is the words of David. It starts off by telling us that it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. It's the word of God. Well, fear, most sociologists would agree, uh, fear is one of the most primal human emotions. It's one of the first emotions we experience as human beings. Uh, My wife, Brooke, is pregnant right now, 14 weeks pregnant with our third child. Um, We have two daughters right now. And we often talk, I've been in the room for uh, the delivery of both of my uh, daughters, uh, Gracelyn and Adeline, and I could speak from experience that it's not an experience for the faint of heart. Uh, Everything about the birthing process could be summed up as intense, and we think often about how intense it is for the mother, and trust me, it is. Uh, The mothers are saying amen, and and even for the fathers in the room, it's it's an intense experience, but we often don't think about how intense the birthing process might be for the baby. Uh, You think about this baby that's been, their entire existence has been in a womb, and it's actually a pretty cushy setup if you think about it, right? It's, uh, it's warm, it's dark, it's comfortable, it's all they've ever known. They're fed constantly without having to lift a finger through the umbilical cord. They've got a pretty cushy setup. Honestly, it's kind of all downhill from the womb once you get born. Um, it's a good place to be. But suddenly, about nine months into their existence of all they've known in the womb, they are the walls of their studio apartment start contracting and, and shrinking in on them, and they are pushed, and things are caved in, and they're pushed out of this body into a new world that they've known nothing of. Light floods their eyes for the first time. What is this thing, light? There's this thing called sound flooding their ears. They take their, their throat is cleared, and for the first time, they breathe in this foreign uh, substance called oxygen that fills their lungs, and it's cold. And it's scary, and every one of us have been through this process. We don't remember it. But the first thing that babies do is always cry. When they are born, when we are born, we cry. Now, what kind of cry would this be? Is this a cry of, um, you know, 
a very contemplative, pensive, I'm crying because what is going on right now? I'm very confused. I'm going to assess my situation. Is it a cry of sadness of losing the comforts of all they've known? No. What kind of cries? This is a cry of fear. The first thing that we do when we come into the world is experience radical fear, a visceral sense of palpable fear of change and uncertainty. And for many of us and all of us throughout life, life is marked by fear. Events happen and pop up, things that we cannot control, situations we are put in that rise up within us and cause fear. And for many of us, our life ends in fear as we face the reality of death. Fear is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. It's a fundamental part of the human experience. And so we would be wise and we must ultimately, in order to be healthy people, learn how to process our fear with God. There's certain things we could do with our fear. We could try to stuff it and, and, and ignore it altogether. We could give into it and let fear drive our life. Or we can do what we see David modeling in Psalm chapter 3, which is acknowledging his fear of the situation he's in, which we'll get to, uh, but not letting the fear drive the train, rather putting the fear in the caboose of the train and allowing the truth of his situation to take hold and take root. Uh, I don't think I need to labor the point that we're living in a moment right now for many of us that's marked by fear. We're living in a moment of uncertainty. Uh, it's not unprecedented in the history of the world, as we've said, but this is certainly an unprecedented season for our generation right now on planet Earth. We have a choice before us, many of us. You know, we've been, our, the pace of life has been forced to slow itself right now. We have a choice. We could spend our days uh, filling them with the onslaught of fear-mongering media that's coming from all extremes and trying to cloud our heads and thoughts. We could spend our days wading into the swampy waters of social media and filling our heads with the things that are there. Or we've been given an opportunity with margin in our life, margin that for many of us has been lacking for years to begin to contemplate the things of God, to begin to meditate on the word of God, to reinvigorate our prayer lives, to reinvigorate community as strange as it is through the gifts of technology that are available to us in 2020. But notice here in Psalm 3, the first thing we read is a heading. It says that this is a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, uh, there are about 70 out of the 150 psalms that were written by David. And of those 70, about two dozen of these psalms have headings like this that actually give us a context for what was happening. So we don't have to wonder what's going on in David's life as he's writing this psalm. The scriptures are very clear. Uh, and I learned this week studying that most of these psalms, when the, when the heading is in italics... That actually means that it was included as an original part of the manuscript. So this is actually included from David as a part of this psalm. And David wants us to know when and where he's writing this. And the context of our psalms, psalm today is that David's son, Absalom, has betrayed him. He's uh, basically formed a resistance army. He's, uh, he's rising up a coup to overtake David and steal the throne from David. This is at the end of David's reign. The context uh, is in 2 Samuel 15 through about 2 Samuel 17. And David is afraid at this moment. There are literally, in this moment, as we read, as David writes the psalm, there are 12,000 soldiers pursuing his life to kill him. 
Now, I know we're facing a lot today. The coronavirus is a very real threat to many of us, not to be taken lightly. We're facing isolation. There's, there's fear in the air right now. But I don't think any of us wake up, woke up this morning with 12,000 soldiers on foot coming to kill us, seeking our lives. This is a bad day for David. He's scared. He's afraid. And so this psalm is going to help us for the next 25 minutes or so to look at how David processes his fear, very real fear, with God. And in this, we can see how we can process some of the fear and maybe even discover some of the fear in our own hearts that we aren't dealing with in this moment. Give it to God and come out the other side in faith. So verse 1 of this psalm, David says this, Lord, How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. The first thing that is easy to notice in this psalm as we start looking is that there's some repetition going on in verse one that gives us some insight into exactly what it is that David is afraid of. He says, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. The number of people pursuing David is freaking him out. It's a number, he's one, and there are 12,000 after him. He's not pretending he's not afraid. He's not bottling it in. David is honest with God, and he's honest with himself about his fear. And that's the first thing we need to do today. We need to get honest with God about what's causing our fear. And we need to get honest with ourselves about what's causing our fear. So David has a visceral threat, a real threat that's honed in on him that's causing fear. But there's another clue here, a second thing that's causing David fear. And perhaps an even darker side to the fear that David is experiencing in this moment. And it's revealed in verse two. And David says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. See, beyond the physical threat upon David's life, there is another type of assault going on on David's well-being. There is a sort of propaganda being spread about David in the kingdom of Israel. There are many people saying of him, God will not deliver him. They're saying God has abandoned David. They're saying God will not save David. Now, to fully understand why this is such a big deal and why this would be such a big deal to David, we need to do some background work on David's journey to power. David's journey to power, it was not a a normal one. Uh, David was raised as the runt of his family. He was one of eight sons. And he spent his youth out in, in the fields as a shepherd, taking care of sheep, He was the runt of the litter. And in 1 Samuel 16, uh, the Lord sends the prophet Samuel to David's father, Jesse. Saul has just fallen and lost his anointing as king, and and the Lord is looking for a new king. And, and, And the Lord tells Samuel to go to Jesse because one of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king of Israel. So as the story goes, in 1 Samuel 16, Jesse parades all of his sons in front of Samuel. But none of them are chosen. He starts with his firstborn, the pick of the litter. And the Lord says, this is not the one. And all seven sons are paraded in front of, Jesse, of Samuel and Jesse. And again, after, time and time again, Samuel says, not the one, not the one. It, ends, it ultimately ends in Jesse asking Samuel, do you have any other sons? Because none of these were the guys. He says, well, the youngest is still out there, but he's out in the field with the sheep. I'm not even sure you honestly want to look at this guy. But 
So they, pull, they call in David from the field and he passes in front of Samuel and Samuel says, this is the Lord's chosen king of Israel. Two really important verses to understand the life of David are found in 1 Samuel 16. The first is 1 Samuel 16, 7, which we read right after the eldest son, Eliab, has been paraded in front of Samuel and Jesse. And, this, and they say, this is surely the guy because he's so strong. He's obviously the chosen one. But Samuel says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So David was chosen because the Lord chose to look upon his heart. But second, the second verse that's so important is 1 Samuel 16, 13. After David has been chosen, it reads this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. See, we need to understand that David was chosen and empowered by grace to a life that was filled supernaturally by the power of God. But when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, far into David's reign, we see that David has started reading his own press clip clippings. He's been empowered by grace, chosen by grace, and, and reigned by grace. And yet he starts believing that he has done some of this on his own. His greatness has started subtly going to his head. And so he starts walking and believing in 2 Samuel 11, like he can just take what he wants, like he can get whatever he wants. And you know the story. He's on the rooftop. He sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. He chooses to take her as his own, even though she's married. And when that happens, then he has her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. He puts him on the front line so that he will be murdered. David falls. He takes a hard fall. And the, the ethos, the message right here, his life turns. And if you read carefully First and Second Samuel, from this moment on, David's family starts falling apart. His kingdom starts being riddled with trials. His very life becomes full of trouble. Even though in Psalm 51, we do see that David repented truly, the sin still has consequences in his life. And the propaganda being spread about David here is all rooted in this story because here's what people are saying about David. They're saying, truly God has abandoned David. God is no longer with David. Look at the loser run out into the wilderness. Look at him hiding in caves. God has abandoned. His hand is no longer on David. See, this is an assault not on David's physical well-being, but on his very identity, on who he considers himself to be. David says, many are saying for me, there's no hope for me in God. But David doesn't stay there. He's dealing with two forms of fear here. The first is the classic sense of fear that we all deal with. It's the fear you feel with if your child runs into the road and you see a car coming at them. Adrenaline fear fills your body and fear has a actual helpful response to get you into the street, to get your child out of the road. That is fear in the classic sense. But there's a second type of fear that was not diagnosed and studied until about 1950 by a man named Rollo May. And it's a type of fear called anxiety. It's a type of fear called anxiety. Anxiety is vague. Anxiety is detached. Anxiety lingers. If fear is a lightning stripe, strike, anxiety is a cold gray sky that never moves and never changes. It is a constant drizzle. Rollo May, who founded the, and, and really uh, studied this word and, and coined the term anxiety, 
in his book uh, called The Meaning of Anxiety in 1950 said this about anxiety. Anxiety is the apprehension cued off by a threat to some value that an individual holds essential to his existence as a personality. The threat may be to physical or psychological life, death or loss of freedom, or maybe some other value which the individual identifies with his existence, patriotism, the love of another person, or success. For example, someone may say, if I couldn't support my family, I'd as soon jump off the end of the dock. This, put simply, is saying that if he couldn't preserve the self-respecting position of being the responsible wage earner, his whole life would have no meaning and he might as well not exist. The occasions of anxiety will vary with the different people as widely as the values on which they depend vary. But what will always be true in anxiety is that the threat is to a value head by that particular individual to be essential to his existence and consequently to his experience as a personality. So David is dealing not just with fear, but with anxiety. How does David respond to fear? How does he respond to anxiety? Because I think it's safe to say for many of us right now, the greatest enemy we face in our life is not this visceral form of fear, but a vague anxiety at all that is going on in the world around us that feels so spinning out of control. Where is my footing? Where do I stand? Where could I possibly turn for true peace, true security in a moment like this where it's hard to even know what's actually going on and what's real and what's fake? Well, the next thing David shows us is that he looks past his circumstances to the character of God. And so we need to learn to look past our circumstances to the character of God. Verse three, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. What David does here is he identifies God's character through three metaphors. The first one David gives us is that God is a shield around him, a shield. Now, I live in Los Angeles, like most of you. I don't wake up most mornings and put on a bulletproof vest. I don't go out my door carrying a shield. Um, there are some people I saw at the park playing swords the other day that might, but I, I don't personally wear a shield. But I think it would expose something about my expectations of the day if every time when I stepped out my door and just engaged life, went to work, to go to the office, went to meet with people, I was carrying a shield. What would that say to them? It would say, this guy has some expectations about what's going to happen to him today. He's expecting to be assaulted. He's expecting to need protection. It would expose my expectations. And David, by praying this, is showing God. He's saying, God, I'm expecting an attack, but you are my shield. The attack is real, but you have promised to guard what is most important and most valuable in me and in my life. God, you are my protection. See, a shield does not, it's not something you carry to prevent hardship. It's something you carry when you expect hardship. It protects you from it. And when we think of trials and hardships as God abandoning us, and that's typically the way so many of us think. We come into seasons, we walk into seasons, things get hard, unexpected, out of control. Has God abandoned me? What have I done wrong? Is this judgment? What's going on in my life? That's the way you could choose to approach God. I'm not going to stop you, but hear me say this. I don't think that lines up with Scripture. See, the Scriptures would show us that sometimes God chooses to prevent terrible things from happening. There are times when he does that. 
praise the Lord for that. There are other times where God chooses to use the trials that come into our life to shape us and mold us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, Jesus tells a parable of two houses, one built on sand, one built on stone. And he says, a storm comes, but the house built on sand fell, the house built on stone stood. But here's the thing, both houses endured the storm. The promise of scripture is not that we avoid trials when we come to Jesus. It's that Jesus is our shield through them. And David reminds himself, he centers himself. He says, if I need protection in this moment, 12,000 coming, my identity on the line, God is my shield. God is my protector. He alone can hold me up in this moment. The second thing, the second illustration David uses is he says, God is his glory, my glory. Now, what does it mean for God to be someone's glory? That's a church word. We hear a lot. If you're new to church, you probably even still hear the church glory being thrown a lot. Well, glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, kavod. And here's what that word literally means. It means heavy. To say something has glory is to say that it's heavy. And it's kind of like when you, someone says a thought that's like really blows your mind and you're like, that's heavy, man. Like, That's what this is. It is God's significance. God, by saying God is glorious, we're saying that God is the most significant thing in all reality. So to give God glory is to declare his weight, his importance, him as the most meaning from, my significance from, where I'm this, this is what I get my significance from. There's a scene in the movie Rocky where this is well illustrated. Uh, Rocky is with Adrian before the night of his big fight with Apollo Creed. And as he lays there preparing himself mentally and emotionally and physically for the big fight, he looks at Adrian and he says, I just gotta go the distance. If I can go the distance, I'll know I'm not a bum. That's the most important line in the Rocky trilogy because it shows us what's going on in Rocky. What is driving Rocky is he needs to go the distance, just stand toe-to-toe with Apollo Creed, and he will know where his significance, his glory comes from. Um, You may judge me if you want to, but I, I took a plunge into the depths of Netflix this week and started watching the show Tiger King. Um... It's terrifying. Uh, I don't know if I recommend it or not. But there was a quote that stood out to me in Tiger King that was so telling of, again, there's the main character in this documentary called Tiger King is Joe Exotic. And Joe Exotic is a hillbilly with a mullet, and he runs a ranch of tigers. Uh, It's really quite fascinating and terrifying. But get this quote. I had to write it down when I heard it. He says this, people say to me, You must have the most incredible life to live with 187 big cats. Does it feel good to stand on my stage with 500-pound tigers and everyone envy me? Absolutely, okay. I would be the biggest liar if I said no. What is Exotic Joe, Joe Exotic, whatever his name is, where is he getting his glory from, his significance? How has he defined himself? What is his identity? His identity is he's the guy, crazy enough, to have 187 tigers in his backyard and have people come watch him. It's his glory. It's his meaning. If it was robbed of him, he would no longer know who he is. And David is at a point in his life, at the end of his reign, where everything that he had derived his meaning and significance from is being stripped of him. He's, he's on the run as king. His family is falling apart. He's lost his moral ground and his standing. People know that David fell with Bathsheba. They know that he was the murderer of Uriah. He's lost everything. And he says in this moment, on the run, 
God, I don't need those things because you are my glory. You are the thing that gives me significance. You are the one that gives me my weight. Perhaps this season that we're walking in is doing the same for some of us. It's stripping us of some things. Some of us in this, on this live stream right now, maybe some of your meaning was derived from your career as an actor or an actress, your ability to get up and put a suit on and go to work and earn a wage. Perhaps some of it was something in your life has shifted and you're wrestling and you're feeling an anxiety. You're feeling this vague pull from your life on things. Will we cave into anxiety or will we turn to God as our glory like David did? Thirdly, David says that God is the one who lifts his head. The one who lifts his head. What a powerful image this is. When do we hang our head? When do you hang your head? A time I can remember definitely hanging my head was in Little League Baseball after striking out, walking back to the dugout, ashamed. I struck out. I shouldn't have done that. Everyone was watching, right? Shame is something that causes us to hang our head. And David says, God is not in the business of shaming when he finds us at our weakest, when he finds us at our most vulnerable, at our most distraught, sick of ourselves, God is not the one that comes and says, you're right, you missed it. He's the lifter of our heads. He's the comforter. He's kind. Uh, um, had a lot of time at home this week, so a lot of this, these illustrations are coming from, from that. But I watched the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with uh, Mr. Rogers this week. And it's a great movie. Tom Hanks highly rec- can recommend that one fully. And... Um, The thing that stands out to you as you watch this movie, and if you know anything about the life of Mr. Rogers, is how kind he was. He was a man that chose to see the good in people. He was a man that chose to speak life to people. And there's this scene from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood where the main character in the movie, outside of Mr. Rogers, a man named Lloyd Vogel, who's a journalist who's writing about the life and writing an article for Esquire about Mr. Rogers. But see, Lloyd Vogel is the opposite of Mr. Rogers. He's a man carrying bitterness and unforgiveness in his heart because his father left his family when he was young and he ended up having to watch his mother die a harsh death. And Lloyd Vogel is carrying unforgiveness towards his father and it's wreaking havoc on his life. And there's this scene where this journalist, Lloyd Vogel, sits down with Mr. Rogers and they're at a diner and over the booth, Lloyd Vogel says this to Mr. Rogers. You love working with people like me, don't you? And Mr. Rogers says back, people like you? I don't know that I've ever met anyone like you. What do you mean? And Lloyd says this, broken people, broken people. And you know, you would think this is the moment where Mr. Rogers might say something like, you're right, Lloyd, you are broken. You're broken by unforgiveness, but this is, that's not the direction Mr. Rogers goes. Listen to this, he says, Lloyd, I don't think you are broken. I believe you are a man of conviction. You have a strong moral compass and you know the difference between wrong and right. An incredible moment where in this man's weakness as he's laid out saying, I'm a broken person, Mr. Rogers doesn't choose to stick his thumb in the wound and twist it. He says, no, that's not who I see you as. I see the good in you. I see the hurt in you that has led you to this place and I'm choosing to speak life and kindness. I'm not here to expose your inner brokenness. I'm here to heal. I'm here to lift and I genuinely love you. Um, there's a verse in Exodus 34 where the Lord uh, passes in front of Moses and Moses says, show me your glory. Show me what makes you who you are. Show me what makes you God. And this is how the Lord chooses to describe himself to Moses in this moment. He says, the Lord 
the Lord. A God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What does God want us to know about him this morning as we wrestle with sin, as we wrestle with shame for that sin, as we wrestle to find our footing and our glory, as we seek a refuge? God wants you to know that he is not in the business of shaming you. God is in the business of speaking life, of lifting up, and in Christ, your debt has been paid, and he sees the beauty of his own son, and he, not only more than that, he loves you for who you are, weaknesses and all included. God is the lifter of our heads this morning. See, so often we don't want to come to God out of fear of how he'll respond. We overlay our experiences with our fathers, our mothers, our bosses, men and women who have failed us in this life and chosen to shame us onto God. But hear me this morning, church, God, when you come to him vulnerable, when you come to him weak, when you come to him repentant, when you come to him even just trying to work up a little bit of repentance, God looks at you and he says, I love you, I delight in you, you're mine, you don't need to fear in my presence. I'm here to speak life. I'm here to heal. I love you as you are. And this is what David is saying. He's saying, God is the lifter of my head. But let's ask a question. How does David know, know in his heart that this is true? In spite of his mistakes and suffering, because this verse three seems to contradict all of his circumstances, right? We've said he has to look past his circumstances to the character of God. How does David know? Know that he knows that he knows that God is for him, that he's the lifter of his head. Uh, the answer is in verse four for us. Verse four says this, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Right here we see, and we'll, we'll, we'll work this out. We see that David looks past himself to his substitute. And that's the next thing we must learn to do to deal with fear. We must learn to look past ourselves to Jesus Christ, the substitute who stood in the place of sinners and took their shame so that they could have his glory, his kavod. So the verse reads, um, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now what mountain might that be? That's probably literally a mountain. It's Mount Zion, it's in Jerusalem. And on the highest hill in Jerusalem, David himself literally built and set up God's tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. This is a place David built. If he's in a cave right now, he can literally look to Jerusalem and say, I built a home for God there, and that is where God is. And when I cry out to him, he answers me from Jerusalem, from the tabernacle on the highest hill of Jerusalem. But let's ask this question. What happens in the courtyard of the tabernacle day after day, day in and day out on a daily basis? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament scriptures, sacrifices were made in the courtyard of the temple every day. People would come for, to uh, get atoned for their sin and there would be a substitution. They would bring a spotless lamb or an animal and that animal would be killed and sacrificed for their sins and God would choose to pour out his just wrath upon sin onto that animal and give grace and forgiveness to the people of Israel. It's a substitution. It's central to the story of the Bible. The death of the substitute covers the sin. So in this moment, we see David looking to Jerusalem, to the holy hill. He's looking towards the substitute that is covered over his sin and given him acceptance before God. What's interesting about this, you may be asking yourself, well, 
Jesus hadn't come and died yet at David's time. So what David is doing right now, he's looking forward to the cross. We live today. We no longer have a tabernacle. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we live in a day where we look backwards. We have the benefit that David himself didn't have of knowing that the very Son of God came, lived, died, bled, resurrected for our justification. We have the gospel in hand, the good news of Jesus. David had to look forward to the imagery, to what the Bible would say is a shadow of things to come, which was the New Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. But we need to understand this because there's this really interesting moment in John 2 where Jesus walks into this tabernacle, this temple, and there's people there selling things. And he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. And he starts turning over tables and, pe- and the, the scribes and Pharisees come to him and they say, hey, by what authority do you get to come into the house of God and start doing things like this? And Jesus says, here's how, here's where I get my authority to do this. Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they said, it took us 40 plus years to build this place. You're crazy. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's not referring to the physical temple. He's saying when this temple is destroyed, I become the temple. And he's referring to his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, where Jesus himself now becomes the temple, the mediator, the place where we go to find acceptance and the presence of God himself. See, for us today, Jesus is the tabernacle. For us today, the gospel is the way that we approach the Father. And this is the crux of the Christian faith. This is the center of everything that makes the Christian faith the Christian faith. It's that another paid the price for our sin so we don't ever have to. It's not, Christianity is not, I try very hard to clean myself up and be a good person so that God will accept me. The Christian faith is this, God has loved and accepted me at great cost to his son, and so I love him. And out of love for him, for what he's done on my behalf, welling up out of my life, out of a joyful pursuit, not a dutiful pursuit, is affection and desire for the presence of Jesus in my life. I'm in love with a person. It's not a system of beliefs. It's not a duty. It's a joy because Christ has become my tabernacle. Christ has become my intercessor. Christ has become the sacrifice that welcomes me. That's why Romans chapter five would say that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness. God is a kind God. He gave us his son. So David looks past himself to the substitute for his assurance before God. And we too must do that in moments like this. Where do we know that we know that we know that we're loved and accepted, that wars nor famines nor viruses nor diseases could separate us from his love? We look to the cross. We look to the Christ, our true and living welcome into the presence of God. As we wind down, let's continue verses five and six. David has worked himself through this process. He's looked past his circumstances to the character of God. He's looked past himself to his substitute, Jesus Christ. And now David simply rests in God. He rests in God. Verses five and six says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. David simply recognizes two things that I think are going to be so helpful for us this morning to recognize. Just think about this. They're simple statements. But David recognizes that it's the Lord alone that sustains him and gives him life. And secondly, David remembers 
that he is never any more or less secure than he is secure in God. Hear me this morning, church. We are no more or less secure since the coronavirus started. We are no more or less secure since the economy started having troubles. We are exactly as secure in every moment of life as God wants us to be because God alone is our security and God alone is our shield, as David would put it. We don't need to fear. We don't need to be people marked by fear. We can lay down and sleep knowing that God is our shield. God is the lifter of our heads. God is our glory, our significance, our meaning, our weight. And the last thing David does here as we close is David trusts that God will one day end all evil. And we need to trust this morning that God will one day end all evil. Verses seven and eight. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. For from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Uh, Honestly, this verse probably for some of us is like, it's hard that that's in the Bible. Like, are we allowed to pray that? Like, can we be, is, is David allowed, like, break the teeth of the wicked? Is that a prayer that I'm allowed to pray before God? Is that allowed? That's in the Bible? What kind of Bible is this? Oh, my goodness. I'm questioning everything. Well, hear me. Yes, it's in the Bible. Yes, it's honest. And one of the beautiful things that this shows us, uh, beyond the fact that God allows us to come to him with our honest prayers, that we don't have to give God, God already knows what's in your heart, Christian. You don't have to posture yourself before him in prayer. He knows the bitterness. He knows the anger. He knows the grief. He sees it before you share it with him. You might as well be honest with God in your prayers about what's going on in your heart. And David's modeling us that for us. And God can handle it. God can handle it. But secondly, this shows us the reality that there is evil in this world. And that those evil things in this world are worthy of anger sometimes. There are things done to people by other people that are worthy and right and godly to be angry at. There are viruses in this world that are evil, the result of a Genesis 3 fall, and they're worthy of anger. They're worthy of grief. We should pray that God would end them. Pray with me that God would end this evil virus as quickly as possible and put an end to it and eradicate it. It's a good, right prayer. David's enemies happen to be humans that are wicked and pursuing him unjustly and want to kill him. Our enemies are tenfold different than that. But just like these men who are being used as tools of the enemy in this text, this virus, financial hardship, death itself are results of the fall. In the Lord's prayer, when Jesus says, pray like this, there's a line in it and he says, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. When Jesus said, pray like this, he included evil, the reality of evil in this world. Viruses, abuse, injustice. Listen, they're gods to deal with. They're gods to deal with. And God will deal with them one day. There is a day coming when he makes all things new. There is a day coming where sin and death and Satan are once and for all vanquished. We live in the already not yet. We live in the in-between. We're, we're a kingdom of priests waiting for the coming king. And we pray and we wrestle with evil. Verse 8, David closes and says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Listen, church, from the Lord comes deliverance. Not from a $1,200 check from the government. Now, 
I'm glad you're glad that's coming. But hear me, that's not going to deliver anyone. We need to look to the Lord. From the Lord comes deliverance. May his blessing be on your people. But I want to add to that this morning. From the Lord comes salvation. The greatest need that any of us have this morning is a need for forgiveness. It's a need for acceptance. It's a need to know that God does not stand over us as a condemning judge, but as a welcoming father, as the lifter of our heads. And hear me this morning, it's so simple. All you have to do to make that true of you, you don't have to do anything. You give up, you let down, and you say, God, I can't save myself, but your son can save me. He lived the life I failed to live. He died the death I deserved. He resurrected in glory three days later, was seen by hundreds and thousands of people, proving it as a historical fact that he alone has power over death. I put my faith in him. I turn from myself and embrace him as the lifter of my head. I turn from my fears to your son. And God in that moment makes a declaration over your life that you're his, that you're forgiven, that you're welcomed, that you're forgiven. Do you believe this morning? Have you given your life to Jesus this morning? Do you need that knowledge in your life in this season? Turn to Christ. Right there in your living room. Give your life to Christ. He's able to save. He's the lifter of your head. He will save you from anxiety. He can save you from sin. He can save you from shame. He can save you from armies of 12,000. He can save us from viruses and disease. But most importantly, hear me, he saves us from death. He saves us from death. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, this is a first for me, preaching to a camera. <laughs> but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for technology. I'm grateful for the common graces you've given us to do church in seasons like this. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach your word. I'm grateful for the promises of your word. Father, make us a resilient people in this season. Make us as Christians a resilient people who defy fear through faith in Jesus Christ, who live lives of bold endurance in seasons of hardship. Father, give us strength to know that you are with us. Help us to look to the substitute every day. And for anyone watching right now that maybe, even if there's just one person watching right now who's saying that prayer and saying, Jesus, I've never turned to you and I want to turn to you right now. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would seal them for the day of redemption and that you would help them to let us know that that's happened so we can walk with them. There's a great way to do that even just in the chat window. So Heavenly Father, have your way. Minister to your people now by your grace. We will not fear for you are our God and we are your people. It's in your name. Amen.